0: Good morning, everyone. It's an honor for me to talk with you this morning. As Sarah mentioned before, we are beginning a series this month called Making Marriage Work. I think it actually should be called Making Relationships Work because many of the things that we'll be talking about this month, the principles, the truths, are all about relationships, not just marriage. The title of my message this morning is called The High Calling of God in Marriage, And if you're not married, or you don't plan on getting married, you could call this message the high calling of God in relationships. Again, because the principles are the same. Why do I call marriage a high calling? It's based on something Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4. He says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And what is that calling? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the high calling of God is to be humble, patient, gentle, and loving with each other. The high calling of God is to make every effort to keep unity and peace in our relationships. I think we could all agree that that is a high calling of God in relationships. Before I launch into my message this morning, I have two disclaimers. First, if you have experienced a divorce, there is nothing in this message that is intended to bring condemnation, so please don't let that happen. We live in a broken world, and sometimes things happen that are beyond our control. In Christ, there is forgiveness, healing, redemption, and acceptance. The second disclaimer is this, if your marriage is suffering from especially difficult problems like adultery, addictions, abuse, then you need to get some help that is beyond the scope of today's message. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we just submit ourselves to you this morning. We thank you for your heart for relationships And Lord, we just simply ask that you give us a heart to receive whatever you have for us this morning. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Marriage, the way God designed it, or doing relationships well, is a high calling for two reasons. The first is because at its core, marriage is a picture of the perfect oneness and unity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Marriage is also to be a reflection of God's relationship with his people. The second reason marriage and other close relationships is a high calling is because of the level of sanctification or spiritual maturity that it takes to do it well. Paul taught that our ability to get along with others is a mark of spiritual maturity. Marriage is the ultimate discipleship laboratory. If you embrace it, marriage can be a journey towards holiness Unlike any other relationship, marriage reveals the good, the bad, and the ugly of who we are. The author, Catherine Ann Porter, said this, Marriage is the merciless revealer. The great white searchlight turned on in the darkest places of human nature. It's impossible to hide who you are from your spouse. Learning how to love one another through all the uglies that can be revealed in marriage means that we have to learn how to die to ourselves and to submit to the painful but beautiful work of God in our lives. That indeed is a high calling. Have you ever wondered why marriage seems so difficult? We all know that God designed marriage and what God designed is good. He designed marriage to be one of the most beautiful expression of human relationships. But something just doesn't seem to be working. And you guys know all the statistics half of our marriages don't make it. Those that give it a second chance statistically fare even worse. And of those who stay married, less than half say they're actually happy in their marriages. So if we were even remotely objective and honest, we'd have to conclude that marriage just doesn't seem to work. On the one hand, we know that God doesn't make mistakes. But on the other hand, our marriages are broken and Many times our best efforts to fix them just doesn't seem to work. So what's going on? What are we missing? I teach a class usually once a year called the Marriage Builders class. And on the first day of class, I brainstorm with the class about all the reasons why marriage is so difficult and why many marriages don't make it. And so I list all of these reasons on the whiteboard. And by the time we're done, we've got about over 50 different reasons why people think marriage is so difficult. And what I've noticed about so many of the reasons listed is our apparent inability or our unwillingness to blend our various differences. Just think about our differences for a moment. I've asked the tech team to list these differences on the on the screen. Let's see if we got them there. There. Differences between men and women. Huge differences in personalities. Differences in husband and wife roles. Differences in our families of origin. Differences in the baggage that we bring into the relationships. Differences in the way we communicate and work through problems. Differences in how we receive and express love. I mean, those first seven are huge. But then we could go on. Differences in the expectations we bring into a marriage. Differences in our values. Differences in our likes, our dislikes, our personal preferences. Differences in how we handle money. Differences in our sexual desires. Differences in our parenting styles. And then, upon the pronouncement of marriage, somehow, we're supposed to magically blend all these differences into one unified relationship. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's, it's amazing that even half of our marriages make it with all of those differences. But here's the shocking thing. Of all the differences that are listed here, and of all the dis- differences that are listed on the whiteboard as we're brainstorming together, there are three reasons three reasons that are usually aren't listed and I think they're the most important reasons for marital breakdown. Those three reasons or enemies of marriage as I'm going to call them this morning are the main reasons why marriage is so difficult. So in the next few minutes I want to reveal who these enemies are and what we can do to defeat them. Okay? All right. Enemy number one. Satan. Surprise. (laughs) Point one. Satan is the archenemy of God. Ever since the time in eternity past when Lucifer decided to rise up in pride and rebel against God, he has been the enemy of God. And his goal is to do whatever he can to thwart the things that God loves. Point number two. Satan attacked God by tempting Adam and Eve. He saw an opportunity to ruin God's plan by attacking the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman. And what happened, of course, is recorded in Genesis 3, but the dramatic transaction that happened in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve had far-reaching implications on God's created order, including marriages. Point three, marriage is the primary target of the enemy. As we've already mentioned, marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the beauty and the oneness and the mutual submission of the members of the Godhead. Throughout the Old Testament, marriage was used as a metaphor to describe God's relationship with his people. Marriage is also a foreshadowing of the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church or his bride. In other words, marriage is pretty important to God. And Satan knows that. Marriage is the backbone of society, which is the backbone of the family, which is the backbone of the church. The success or failure of marriages has far-reaching implications on generations that follow. And we see the effects of this in our society on a daily basis, don't we? Do you guys realize that 43% of our families today are single-parent families? 43%. 73% of black families are single-parent families. The disintegration of families has caused untold trouble in our society. The success or failure of marriages is critical. The fact that the definition of the marriage has changed in recent years is not just the evolutionary growing pains of a society. It's a well-orchestrated scheme of the enemy, to destroy something that God values. So with so much at stake, both here on earth and in heaven, is it any wonder why marriages are a primary attack of the enemy? In an all-out effort to thwart the things that God cares about, that God loves, Satan has launched a massive attack on the intimate union of a man and a woman, God's prized possession. Point number four, your enemy is not your spouse. Satan is. He hates God, he hates you, he hates your spouse, and he hates your marriage. As, as it says in John 10.10, 10, Satan's job is to steal, kill, and destroy. This is a spiritual reality that few of us take into consideration when it comes to the problems that we face in our marriages. In Ephesians 6, Verse 12, Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your family member. It's not your coworker or friend. Our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. It couldn't be stated more simply and clearly. This is a reality that we have to come to grips with. So, How can we defeat this enemy? Number one, we need to declare the reality of Christ's victory. Satan has already been defeated by Jesus on the cross. It's what we celebrated when we took communion this morning. We need to rise up in the authority that we have as believers and stand against the schemes of the enemy that are meant for our destruction. Amen? Number two, We need to stop fighting each other. We need to stop fighting each other and recognize and acknowledge that we're on the same team. And as teammates, we need to cheer for one another. We need to support one another. We need to encourage one another instead of tearing each other down. And number three, we need to commit our marriages to God in prayer and cry out for his mercy and grace. How many of you have seen the movie War Room? Raise your hand if you've seen the movie War Room. Quite a few of you, about half of you. It's a Christian movie about how the power of prayer can bring healing and change to our marriages. If you haven't seen that movie, I would encourage you to rent it and view it sometime. Okay. Enemy number two is selfishness and pride. Point one, the issue of maturity. I'm going to make a couple of brutal statements, and I hope you still love me after I make them. <clears throat> Most couples who get married aren't mature enough for marriage. That's quite a sobering statement, isn't it? We simply lack the maturity and the character to handle the pressures and the challenges that marriage presents. When it comes to having what it takes to blend our differences, deal with our disappointments, how we use our tongues, and how we deal with our own selfishness and pride, we are woefully ill-prepared to enter into a lifetime relationship with another person. Now, this was true for Connie and me as well. When we got married, we thought we had it, what it took to make for a good marriage. We came from good families We had already known the Lord for a number of years, so that wasn't an issue. We had a good church that prepared us for marriage. We had good role models as examples for us. And Connie and I took the time in our dating and engagement process to really get to know each other. But my, oh my, oh my, how little did we know how difficult it would be to blend our differences. I had my ideas of what marriage should look like. Connie had her ideas of what marriage should look like, but our worldviews didn't match. That's when we began to see the uglies in each other and ourselves. This is when selfishness and pride began to rear their ugly heads. But God in his mercy began to teach us things that began a sanctifying work inside of us that continues to this day. Point number two, having the attitude of Christ. Without trying to sound oversimplistic, the cause of all marital discord, in my opinion, is some form of selfishness and pride. When I look back at all the times that Connie and I have fought, in hindsight, I can always trace it back to some form of selfishness and pride, especially in Connie. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. I was just checking to see if you guys were paying attention this morning. (laughs) To the degree that we allow our fleshly natures to call the shots, to that same degree, we're going to experience trouble in our marriages. On the other hand, it's not difficult to understand how, if we could just be like Jesus to one another, our marriages would be fantastic. If WWJD, what would Jesus do, were really the governing principle of our lives, instead of just a Christian platitude or a piece of jewelry, our marriages would be amazing. This is why marriage is more of a discipleship issue than anything else. It all boils down to this. Do I really want to be like Jesus in how I relate to my spouse? This is why I tell couples all the time that the best investment that they can make in their marriage is to grow in their relationship with God. I'd like the tech people to put up the following diagram for you. This is a diagram that I often use when I'm working with couples. And I say that the closer we grow in our relationship to God, you can see the closer we grow in our relationship to each other. The more oneness and intimacy we experience with God, the more oneness and intimacy we'll experience with each other. So how can we be more like Jesus in how we relate to one another? Paul says by imitating the attitude of Christ. In Philippians 2, Paul says this, If you have any encouragement from being being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Basically, Paul is saying, look, you guys, if you claim to be followers of Christ and have tasted the goodness of God, then let's be spiritually mature enough to get along with one another. Then Paul goes on in this passage to address the main culprits that prevent us from doing this. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. So how can I take on the attitude of Christ? By coming to grips with my selfishness and pride. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There it is, selfishness and pride. How do I not be selfish and proud? Two things. I humble myself to the point of considering my spouse more important than myself. And number two, I put my spouse's needs and interests ahead of my own. Just as Jesus made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant, so I, need, I too need to make myself nothing and learn how to serve my spouse. Point number three, the cause of conflict. There's another passage that sheds light on what we need to do to combat this enemy of selfishness and pride. And it's listed in James 4, verses 1 and 2. It says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So what causes fights and quarrels? What does it say? From your desires. Desires that battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill, and I added, with words and covet, but you cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and fight. This passage basically says that fights and quarrels is caused from the desires within us. Basically, we want what we desire. We want what we want. We want what? We want our rights to be respected honored, and honored, right? We want our expectations to be met. We want what we think is right. I mean, what we think is right is right, of course, right? I mean, we, we want what we feel we deserve, We want to be right. We want to win. We want to have control. We want things to be done our way. The list of what we want and feel what we deserve could go on and on. And when we don't get what we want, the scripture says, that's when the uglies come out. And this brings us to point four, embracing the beauty of brokenness. So what do we do about the enemy of selfishness and pride? Or as James says, the desires that battle within us. After Pentecost, when Peter had spoken to the crowds for the first time and explained the gospel, first time they were hearing the beautiful message of the gospel, the scripture says that the people who were listening to, to Peter at that point were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said the only appropriate response at this point is to repent. In this chapter where James talks about the quarrel Cause of fights and quarrels. He also goes on to give us the solution. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is the cause of our quarrels and fights. If we stay in the attitude of pride, the scripture says that God will actually oppose us or resist us. On the other hand, if we humble ourselves, it says that God releases his grace which is the desire and the power to do his will. So God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, submit yourselves then to God. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So more than anything else, more than marriage counseling, more than marriage classes, more than marriage seminars, more than marriage books. What we need is real brokenness before God and true repentance. You guys, the bread had to be broken before it could feed the multitudes. Jesus' body had to be broken before forgiveness could be offered to us. The grain of wheat has to fall to the ground and die before it can produce many seeds. The alabaster jar has to be broken before its perfume could be released. Brokenness in the form of true humility is the answer to our hurting relationships. In Psalm 51:17, David says this, "The sacrifices, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. In other words, the sacrifices that God prefers are a broken spirit." A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. There needs to be a desperate cry in our hearts that says, God, please forgive me for my selfishness and pride, for trying to do things my own way. Forgive me for my immaturity and my hurtful ways. Forgive me for not responding to your grace and wisdom to make my marriage work. Forgive me for not surrendering to your will and allowing the Holy Spirit to have his way with me. Forgive me for not loving my spouse well. That's the level of brokenness that will heal a relationship. Brokenness, or humbling ourselves before God, surrenders control of our lives, which allows God to transform us from the inside out. Brokenness is the fertile soil in which God can grow something new in me, something that will bring hope and healing and life to my marriage. God does all the work All he asks for is a willing and surrendered heart. Surrendering to God is the only way I can walk in a manner worthy of the high calling of God in marriage. I want to give you guys a contrasting picture between selfishness and pride on the one hand and the beauty of brokenness on the other. I'm going to show you some clips. These clips were taken from the movie Fireproof. And I have to warn you that this first clip is very intense and it's difficult to watch. The second clip shows the beauty of brokenness and then the third clip shows the healing that follows. Let's take some time to look at these clips. So you left me no pizza.
1: Caleb, I just lit that candle. I like the way it smells.
0: Well, I don't. Did you leave me any dinner at all?
1: I assumed you were eating with Michael.
0: Does it not occur to you that there are two people living in this house and both of them need to eat?
1: You know what, Caleb? If you would communicate with me, maybe I could have something for you.
0: Why do you have to make everything so difficult?
1: Oh, I'm making everything difficult? Seems to me like I'm the one carrying the weight around here while you're off doing your own thing.
0: Excuse me? I'm the one out there working to pay this mortgage and I pay for both of the cars.
1: Yeah, and that's all you do. I pay all of our bills with my salary.
0: Which you agreed to do. That's fair. Do you not like this house? Do you not like your car? Oh,
1: Caleb, who takes care of this house? Me. Who washes all the clothes? Me. Who gets all the groceries? Me. Not to mention I'm helping my parents every weekend. You know, I've got all this pressure on me, and the only thing you ever do for anybody is for yourself.
0: Let me tell you something. You don't know the first thing about pressure. All right? You think I, I put out house fires for myself? Or, or rush to car wrecks at 2 a.m. for myself? Or pull a child's body out of a lake for myself? You have no idea what I go through.
1: Oh, yeah, but what do you do around here other than watch TV and waste time on the Internet? You know what? If looking at that trash is how you get fulfilled, that's fine, but I will not compete with it.
0: Well, I sure don't get it from you.
1: And you won't! Because you care more about saving for your stupid boat and pleasing yourself than you ever did about me.
0: Shut up! I'm sick of you! You disrespectful, ungrateful, selfish woman! So. How dare you say that to me? You constantly nag me and you drain the life out of me! I'm tired of it! If you can't give me the respect I deserve, look at me! Then what's the point of this marriage?
1: I want out.
0: I just want out. If you want out, that's fine with me!
1: This is not normal for you.
0: Welcome to the new normal.
1: You didn't want to do this at first, did you?
0: No. But halfway through, I realized that I did not understand what love was. And once I understood that, I wanted to do it.
1: Caleb, I want to believe that this is real. And I'm not ready to say that I trust you again.
0: I understand that. But whether you ever reach that point or not, I need you to understand something. I'm sorry. I have been so selfish. For the past seven years, I have trampled on you with my words and with my actions. I have loved other things should have loved you In the last few weeks God has given me a love for you that I've never had before and I have asked him to forgive me and I'm hoping I'm praying That's so...
1: I'm supposed to give those divorce papers to my lawyer next week. I just, um... I need some time to think. If I haven't told you that you are a good man, you are. If I haven't told you that I've forgiven you, I love you. I do. Something has changed in you, Caleb. And I want what happened to you to happen to me. It can't. Is it too late to ask you to grow old with me?
0: I've seen those scenes dozens of times, and I can't watch it without crying. And the reason. is because of the beauty of brokenness true humility brokenness and repentance is a beautiful thing to god because when that happens god can change a heart he can change your life it can save your relationship that's why brokenness is the answer To the problem of selfishness and pride. So, how do we defeat the enemies of selfishness and pride? Number one, I humble myself and repent in true brokenness. Number two, I surrender control of my life and my marriage to God. And then number three, I let God conform me into the image of Christ. Okay, the last enemy, enemy number three is an inability to manage conflict. All relationships have conflict. As individuals who are uniquely made, it's actually normal to have conflict. But you guys, conflict is not the problem. It's how you handle and work through conflict that really matters. Working through conflict well can actually strengthen a relationship and preserve unity. Not working through conflict well can cause all manner of hurt and damage. The way we work through conflict determines whether we'll grow from it or be wounded by it. There's a very familiar passage that sheds some insight on this. It's taken from Ephesians four twenty-five. It says this, Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Point one says, put off falsehood. So what does it mean when it says, put put off falsehood and speak truthfully with your neighbor? I think falsehood is any communication that does not allow us to speak the truth in love. There are so many times when we say things to each other, especially in the heat of an argument, that can be false or unfruitful or hurtful. We have to learn how to put off falsehood. That means that we have to make a choice to stop playing all the silly games we play the power plays, the silent treatments, the sarcasm, the hurtful jabs, the exaggeration, the subtle forms of manipulation, the need to be right or win an argument. All those things are falsehood. Instead, we need to learn how to speak the truth to each other in a way that creates an environment where you can speak honestly and openly and safely with one another. Number two, do not sin in your anger. Another way of saying this is when you are angry, do not sin. Anger is a normal emotion that we will experience many times as we try to work through issues together. Sin, however is a choice in other words there are many times in life when we will experience the emotion of anger but anger is not the problem how we choose to handle and work through our anger determines whether or not we sin Paul goes on to say do not let the sun go down while you are still angry while applying this verse literally I think is a wonderful goal I think it's figurative application is equally as powerful In marriage, or in any relationship for that matter, letting the sun go down on your anger means letting issues get buried. If we don't have good communication and problem-solving skills, we won't have the ability to go after those issues. And if we don't have the ability to go after those issues, they get buried. They don't go away, though. They just get buried. And when they get buried, that's when the sun goes down on your anger. And then the Bible says, and do not give the devil a foothold. If a couple doesn't intentionally go after those buried issues and work through them successfully, those issues stay buried. And if they stay buried, the enemy is able to get a foothold in your marriage. And if he is allowed to continue to gain footholds and handholds, he can literally climb up the back of your marriage and his influence will significantly weaken if not eventually destroy the marriage. So what is the answer to handling conflict well? The secret is this beautiful word called understanding. Point three, seek understanding. In Psalm 49, verse 3, David says, My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. Our communication is often unprofitable and destructive. And when we try to work through problems, we often get bogged down in triggering events or surface issues that have little to do with what's really important in our marriages. Many couples have a tendency to talk at one another instead of with one another. Each person has a strong desire to be understood, but neither does a very good job of understanding the other. The irony is each person desperately wants the very thing that they're not giving to the other. Nine times out of ten, when Connie and I get stuck in conflict, it's because we don't fully understand each other. There's something inside of us that craves understanding. God just simply made us this way. Stephen Covey, the author of the classic book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said this. I love this quote. The deepest hunger of the human heart is to be understood. For understanding implicitly affirms, validates, recognizes, and appreciates the intrinsic worth of another. When you really listen to another person, you acknowledge and respond to that most insistent need. The fundamental need of every person on the face of this earth is to love and be loved. Truly understanding another person communicates that kind of love and care. If you could step into the middle of a heated argument, I mean a heated silly argument between a husband and wife, and just push the button and and push pause. Just freeze frame it right there. And then you could pull one one of the spouses out of that frame and just pull them aside and have a private conversation with them and say, hey, what is it that you're looking for here? What is it that you really want? If that person were honest, they'd say, You know what, Joel? I don't care about this stupid thing that we're fighting about. It really doesn't matter. I just want him to listen to me. I just want him to hear my heart. I just want her to understand me. I just want her to appreciate me. I just want her to respect me. I want to know that he loves me and cares for me and values me and accepts me. Proverbs fifteen twenty one says, Folly delights a man who lacks judgment, but a man of understanding keeps a straight course. Focusing on whose fault it is, focusing on who's right or wrong, who's going to win the battle of wills is foolishness. Wisdom, on the other hand, puts all of your personal rights aside and it seeks for deeper understanding. In a sense, you win by losing you win the war of preserving the relationship by losing the battle over personal rights. I'm going to say that again. You win the war of preserving the relationship by losing the battle over personal rights. Your goal is not to win an argument. Your goal is to win a heart and preserve unity. Your goal is not to win an argument. Your goal is to win a heart and preserve unity. You have to put the relationship above any issue which could bring division, and you do that by seeking understanding. So the key to dealing with conflict in a healthy way is to seek understanding. I'm going to share just a couple more scriptures with you that highlight the same thing. This is taken from Proverbs 4, verses 7 through 8. It says, Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Esteem her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. And then Proverbs 19:18 says this: He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who cherishes understanding prospers. Couples need to learn how to share with one another in a way that promotes a deeper understanding of each other's thoughts and feelings. When a person feels understood, it is deeply validating and affirming. And then out of that place of mutual understanding, couples can work together as a team to find solutions. Let me summarize all of this visually. I've got a diagram, not a diagram, but an illustration here that I'm going to use. It says, how does the sun set in your marriage? You see that conflict is in the middle because conflict is a given. But on the left side of the page is what happens to many of us often. When we have poor communication skills and we're concentrating more on who's going to win this argument, who's going to prove uh, who's right or wrong? Who's going to win the battle of wills? It inevitably leads to frustration and anger, and of course, in our frustration and anger, we have a set tendency to say things to each other and do things to or say things and do things that are harmful and hurtful. So it causes hurt and pain. Now, none of us like the feeling of being hurt. None of us like that pain. So what do we do? We put up walls and we withdraw and avoid. And of course, when you're in that posture, when you're in that mode, you can't resolve your issues, so issues get buried, and then the devil gets a foothold. This cycle happens over and over and over in our relationships. What we want to do is to get from the left side of the page to the right side of the page. If we have good communication, that means we're focusing on understanding. And understanding always brings a sense of validation and affirmation. When that happens, there's a spirit of goodwill in the relationship. Honestly, if you feel understood and your spouse feels understood, you're feeling pretty good about each other. There's goodwill. And when there's goodwill in a relationship, you can work as a team to find solutions. And when you do that, there's resolution. The sun doesn't go down in your anger. And the relationship is strengthened and preserved. So we need to get from the left side of the page to the right side of the page. So how do we deal with this enemy of poor conflict management? Number one, don't let issues get buried. In other words, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Keep short accounts with each other. And how do we do that? By number two, seeking understanding. And then once we have understanding, number three, we can work as a team to find solutions. I'm going to close this morning reading the same scripture that I read when I opened my message this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. Because it talks about what I introduced this message about fulfilling our high calling of God in marriage. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And what is that calling? To be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up now and also the prayer teams. Those of you who are going to be serving on prayer teams, please come forward. I just have a few closing comments here. You guys, 90% of the work that I do with couples, when I work with couples, are centered around the themes that I've been talking to you about this morning. If you can recognize these enemies, in your marriage, and you can cooperate with God in defeating them, you will have a thriving marriage and relationship that will allow you to walk out your high calling and bring glory to God. In just a moment, I'm going to close us in prayer. But before I do, I want to extend an invitation, especially to couples this morning, to come up and get prayer. If you have been stuck as a couple and you've been struggling for whatever reason, I want to encourage you to come up and get some prayer. It doesn't have to take long. The prayers can be brief, but something can be released this morning that can bring a breakthrough in your marriage or in your relationships. And I want to just encourage you guys, you know what? All of us struggle in our relationships. Pastors, all the pastors on this staff have issues that they have to work through with their spouses. No one's exempt from this. So don't let shame or embarrassment or pride keep you from coming up this morning and getting prayer also if you're struggling in a relationship with a family member or a friend or a coworker i would encourage you to come up and get prayer as well okay let's close in prayer together lord we are so thankful for your beautiful plan for marriage and for relationships Lord, you are the God of relationships. You've given us the ministry of reconciliation. Relationships are important to you. Not only because you want to bless us, but because our relationships are a reflection of our relationship with you and of who you are. Your word even says, Lord, that the world will know that we are disciples by the love that we have for one another. And so, Lord, we ask you to forgive us. We fall so short in this area of relationships. We repent, Lord, and we ask you to help us to get to a place of real brokenness, a place of real surrender. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for doing something powerful in us this morning. Something powerful like we saw in those video clips where you can change us, Lord, from the inside out. Lord, bring change. Conform us into the image of Christ. Make us holy as you are holy so that we can truly fulfill the high call of God that's upon each of our lives and we can bring glory to you. Thank you for this time together, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.